All right, welcome friends. I'm so glad that you guys are here joining us at One Life City Church today. As Elliot said, I'm Vanessa, <laughs> one of the pastors here. Um, and we are continuing on in our series on Isaiah. And Jay Lee started us off last week um, in the first chapter of Isaiah. And um, man, you know, Isaiah was just holding nothing back. <laughs> in that first chapter, he just starts out um, with this message of, of God's anger about the injustice that he saw. Um, among his people, the people who were supposed to be representing him. And he saw this injustice and he was angry. And, and I feel like, you know, that message is just so, so timely, um, just in the midst of, of everything that's going on in, in our country and the world right now, as, as we see these headlines every day of, of mass shootings happening and people being shot and killed by the police. And we see migrants and refugees that, that are fleeing from, from violence and, and being turned away at our borders. You know, there's just so much, it's so overwhelming, the injustice that we see. And yet there's comfort in knowing that God is angry about that injustice too. That as we lament these things that are happening, that God laments too. And, and we saw this, this promise that it's not always going to be like this that there is justice that's going to be enacted. And yet, even in that, like God's mercy is that his desire is not to destroy, but actually to refine and to restore. So we're going to continue on in this message as we jump into chapter two. Uh, But before we get into it, I just wanted to mention a few things that that are good to keep in mind as as we go throughout Isaiah and, and anytime that you're reading through the prophets. Um, there's often a lot of symbolism and imagery in there. It's, it's not all supposed to be taken literally, um, but one thing that's really cool is that a lot of times some of those symbols and imagery, you see it throughout the biblical narrative. And so as you're reading it and, and, and these symbols come to mind that you've maybe heard in, in other stories throughout the biblical narrative, those can help give some context to it. And prophecies aren't always super clear how they're going to be fulfilled. And probably even for the prophets who wrote these, as they were speaking out the message that God had given to them, they might not have even known exactly what that was going to look like in fulfillment, right? We see a lot of the prophecies that, that are fulfilled in Jesus, but at the time, people weren't expecting that kind of Messiah, that kind of Savior to come. Even the people who followed Jesus were, were confused as he was, as he was sharing about these, uh, these prophecies. Um, but we do have um, the gift of hindsight that, that we get to see post-Jesus, how he fulfilled some of these prophecies. And we also get to see Jesus' words. He actually quotes the prophets a lot, and specifically the prophet Isaiah. And so we can understand these prophecies in light of Jesus. And also, as, as Jay Lee talked about last week, um, in the kingdom of God, as well as in these prophecies, there is the component of now and not yet. Right? Some of this stuff, it's maybe already been fulfilled in Jesus, but it hasn't come to complete fulfillment. We're still waiting for that. So with those things in mind, let's jump into Isaiah 2, starting in verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem... It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest mountain, as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. 
and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, shall decide disputes for many people, many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And so after, after the, the message of judgment in the first chapter, we get to transition into this vision of hope, where Isaiah is sharing about someday in the latter day, someday in the future, we're going to see, we're going to see people flocking to the temple on the mountain of the Lord, people from all nations. And it's important for us to understand the symbolism of mountains. In a lot of different religious traditions in this time, mountains were really significant in that people believed that their gods resided on these mountains. They would build altars and go and worship on these mountains. And so the different mountains often represented different gods. And so when it says that the mountain of the Lord is going to be established as the highest of all mountains and hills, it's this idea that God is going to be established as the one true God. He is over any other idols that we create. And even for the Israelite people, mountains had a lot of significance. We see, through, we see it throughout the biblical narrative where people encountered God's presence on mountains, starting even in the very beginning where the Garden of Eden was established on a mountain. We think of Noah. When his ark landed, it landed on a mountain. As he, and when he eventually came out, he made an altar there to the Lord. Abraham was led by God to a mountain where he was tested when he was asked to sacrifice his son. Moses encountered God in the burning bush at Horeb, which was considered the mountain of the Lord. And then again, Moses met with God on Mount Sinai when he was given the law. David set up the tabernacle, which was considered to house God's presence on Mount Zion. And then eventually Jesus was crucified on Golgotha, at Golgotha which was a skull-shaped hill. And so we see throughout the biblical narrative that that people are encountering God's presence on these mountains and these hills. And in each one of these encounters, God is teaching them something significant or doing something new. So we see here, we see this temple on the mountain of the Lord. And again, the temple was significant for the Jewish people. This was a representation of God's presence with them. It was a symbol of God's presence, and yet it couldn't contain God's presence. And it was never supposed to be about the building or the religious ritual. And that's what we see Isaiah condemning in, in chapter 1, where you know they're doing all the rituals, they're going to the temple and offering their sacrifices, but they're neglecting injustice. And Jesus also had harsh criticism for the temple. You know, we, we remember that image of Jesus clearing out the temple because he said it had become a house of robbers. They were using this temple as a place for more of their injustice. And when, when the teachers of the law confronted Jesus after this, Jesus responds by saying, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. 
The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus is declaring, it's not about that building, but but he's saying, I am the true temple. And again, as we talked about with the prophecies, you know, it's not always understood. Even his disciples at the time didn't understand what he was saying there. They didn't understand it until after he had died and resurrected. We see also when Jesus was crucified that the temple, but the curtain in the temple was torn. This was signifying that God's presence wasn't limited to this place, and it wasn't just for some people to come and access, but that, that God's presence was in Jesus, and it was for everybody. Everybody had access to it. And so when we see this image of people flocking to the temple on the mountain of the Lord, we shouldn't imagine this, this physical place, but it's the idea that people are flocking to Jesus. Jesus is the temple on the mountain of the Lord. And people from all nations are flocking to him. Just to worship and offer sacrifices and go through the rituals. But they're coming that he may teach us and that we in God's purpose. It's not just about believing and worshiping and religious traditions. But when Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, that was Jesus saying, look at me. I am showing you the way to experience this new life. It's through putting down your sword. It's through taking up your cross. It's through loving your enemies, welcoming the stranger, feeding the hungry. It's through freeing the oppressed. It is in humbling yourself and loving others. That is the way of Jesus that he is calling us to. It's the way of peace and love and humility. And we see as we continue on in verse 4, what it looks like when people are following in the way of Jesus. It says in verse 4, He shall judge between the nations, and he shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. When we're following in the way of Jesus, there will be no more violence. There's going to be no need for weapons because people won't be competing for power. And amidst all the violence that we're seeing, all the headlines throughout this past week, man, this image, I long for that day. I long for that day when there's not going to be any more violence, when people won't be using guns to murder people, when there won't be any more war, there won't be any more xenophobia or racism. And it's really interesting, this, this image that we're given of, of these weapons, it's not just that the weapons are being cast down, thrown away, but they're being turned into something new. They're being turned into gardening tools. And the idea of these gardening tools should actually point us back to the Garden of Eden, to our original intention. Right? We were never supposed to take up these weapons and compete for power, but we, we were called in the beginning, Adam and Eve were given this responsibility of working and taking care of the garden. God's original intention was that we 
would have live in this picture of the garden where we would be in loving relationship with him, with others, where we would enjoy the abundance and the goodness of his creation, and that we would actually partner with him in ruling over creation. And it was not by exercising power and control, but by caring for each other and creation. Not by abusing and exploiting people and the earth for our own personal gain, but by cultivating shalom for all creation. So this picture that we see in the garden at the beginning is the vision of hope that God is calling us to. And the way that we experience that is in learning from Jesus and following in his path. So this vision of hope that Isaiah gives us, it points back to the garden, to God's original intention, and it also points ahead to Jesus, who is going to help to redeem and restore God's creation back to its original intention. And so there, there is this component of, of now and not yet, where for us now, we, we are still waiting for the day when we will see this, when there will be no more weapons or violence, when we will see the the complete fulfillment of, of Jesus' kingdom here on earth. But we also get to experience pieces of it now. As we learn from Jesus' ways and follow in his path now, we get to experience pieces of this vision of hope that we see in Isaiah. I'm going to continue on in verse 6. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So we see here there's this abrupt transition where we've had this picture of hope, and now we're seeing this warning that Isaiah is giving that on this day of judgment, when we see the splendor of God's majesty as he rules over the nations, there are some who will experience it as the terror of the Lord. Because everything that has been exalted will be humbled. The pride and the arrogance and the greed and the idolatry and the weapons of war will be thrown down. And for people who have relied on those things, for their status and their power, that's going to be bad news for them. It says that they're going to run for cover. But God's purpose, again, is not to destroy, but to refine and restore. And yet there are consequences for those who have relied on greed and violence and power and their own abilities to gain status over others. All the things that we use to build ourselves up at the expense of others will not last. Those things will lead to destruction. And so this is a sobering reality where we have to, we have to ask ourselves, we have to question, what is it that we're pursuing? 
Are we pursuing that way of Jesus, or are we pursuing these other ways of the world? And again, when it, when it talks about this day of the Lord, there is that component of the now and not yet. It, it says in the latter days or in the last days, which I think for many of us, we've been taught to hear that language as, as just like the end of the world kind of thing. And this does point to someday in the future when Jesus comes again and all creation is restored. But it also points to Jesus establishing his kingdom here on earth through his life and resurrection. It points to other times in history when just, justice has been enacted. And so we, we don't necessarily, the goal is not to understand exactly what or when or how this day of the Lord is going to come about. But the point is for us to, to understand the call that Isaiah is actually giving to us. And so we see his call in two different places in chapter 2. There's a call at the end of that section of the vision of hope, and there's also a call at the end. It says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And then in Isaiah 2.22, he says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. All that Isaiah is giving is to stop trusting in the way of man and instead to follow in the light of the Lord. And it's interesting the way in verse 22 how, how he describes man. Where he says, man in whose nostrils is breath. And I wonder if that, that language of, of, um, of breath in his nostrils makes you guys think of anything. But maybe again, this points us back to the garden and the story of creation. It points us to Genesis 2-7, where it said that the Lord God formed man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So when we see this choice where, where we are either to follow the light of the Lord or we follow in the way of man who has breath in his nostrils, it's this idea that, that we're given the choice to follow the way of the Creator, the one who created all of us, who created the universe, who knows what is best for us, or we can choose to follow the way of man, the created one. We can choose to go our own way. And this is the same, the same choice that Adam and Eve were given in the garden, and the same choice that we have now. And it's interesting that the Bible project, when it talks about the story of creation, and it talks about the trees that were planted there in the garden. You know, we have the tree of life, the tree that, that Adam and Eve were commanded to go and eat from so that they could live with God in eternity in, this, in the abundance and goodness of his creation. But there was also this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they were told not to eat from. And in that, we see there was that choice. Are you going to trust God that where he's leading you and, and what he has for you is best? Or are you, gonna, are you going to define good and evil for yourself in the way that benefits you? And this is the same issue that Isaiah raises. And in fact, if we look back in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 29, it said, For you shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall bless 
throughout humanity has been that we've desired the wrong tree and we have chosen the other, other wrong garden. We have chosen to follow the way of man or just our, our natural human inclination which says that we need to grasp for what we want. We need to protect ourselves. We need to gain more. We need to have power over others. And it hasn't worked out very well. That's what Isaiah is trying to point out to the people of Judah in this time. Look around and see the injustice. It's not working out. We see that in our world today as we look around. Following the way of man is not working out. And so Isaiah calls the people of God to turn away from all that and instead to choose to trust and follow the Creator to pursue the way of peace and humility and love for all God's people and concern for all God's creation. And this call that he gives to us reminds me a lot of uh, Philippians 2, which might be a passage that's, that's more familiar to you guys than Isaiah 2. In verses 1 through 11 of Philippians 2, it says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full of accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That has been the call since the beginning. It was the call to Adam and Eve in the garden. It was the call to the Israelites when God established them as his people, and then again when he, when he gave them the law. It was the call that Jesus gave through his life and his death. It's the call for us now, and it's the call for us in the future, whatever that may look like. Paul is to stop trusting in the way of man and instead to walk in the light of the Lord. So as we finish up today, I just have a couple questions um, just for you guys to consider um, throughout the week. Just consider the way that you are living, the things that you are pursuing in all areas of your life. Are you following the way of man, trying to gain wealth, power, status, and comfort at the expense of others? Or are you following the way of Christ, humbling yourself, pursuing peace and justice, and loving others? Thank you, Vanessa, for such a wonderful, thoughtful, thought-provoking uh, message this morning. And um, a couple weeks ago, I uh, met uh, a friend and colleague from New Zealand. He's kind of like a brother from another mother. And uh, he's from the um, 
Maori tribe in uh, New Zealand, one of the indigenous uh, tribes in the area, and we're, we're in the process of doing some research on what Christian formation and discipleship looks like in d indigenous populations. And he was um, introducing to me this uh, interesting, uh, uh, th th these terms, these distinctions that, uh, based on his doctoral thesis. And uh, the, the, the terms that he used really got me thinking about some stuff related to our church as well. Uh, he made the distinction between um, industrial churches and indigenous churches. You know, uh, so industrial churches and indigenous churches. And when I think of an indigenous church, I think of uh, the roots of our church six, seven years ago when we just met uh, in that room behind us, just like a circle of uh, a few um, uh, of a few families, kind of like a house church style. When I think of an indigenous church, I think of all of us worshiping while holding down the stakes. You know. <laughs> when uh, you know, I saw Edgar kind of you know walk over here to hold down the stakes, and everyone just kind of did this automatically. And I think of this idea that we're not a church; we're a church that's still present, that's still exposed to the elements in our environment. In fact, that's part of our nature. That's part of our values. So when we have Santa Ana winds and we're outside, guess what? We're implicated. You know, we have to deal with the wind. We're present to the wind and we kind of struggle with the wind. And similarly, when we live in a country where there's tragedy after tragedy after tragedy and our brothers and sisters are being shot and killed. And uh, lately, it's uh, the latest one is in Indiana with a, a number of uh, our Sheik brothers and sisters who, who have been killed. Um, we too are implicated. You know, we're not the kind of church that shelters each other from all the evil that's going around the world. And that's one of the values of an indigenous church as opposed to an industrial church. And as an indigenous church, that's also one of the reasons why we value diversity. We're not just interested in having a diverse kind of website so we can show that we got a bunch of brown and yellow and you know white people. Uh, we, want, we value this because we want to reflect what the neighborhood looks like. You know, so our desire is not to all look the same or think the same or be the same. We want to embody the diversity of thinking and the diversity of appearance and the diversity of all the above uh, in the communities here at Fullerton, Buena Park, you know, Anaheim, and so forth. And the last kind of, uh, and putting this all together and relating to what Vanessa has shared so well, I feel like one of the additional values of our church, an additional value of an indigenous church, is that we value harmony with our environment. Like we're present to our environment, but what we're fighting for, what we're pushing for, what we're pursuing is not for an agenda where we're successful, where we're great, where we're winning all the time, and out of our success we kind of share some of the scraps with other people around us who might be less fortunate. What we're really after is for all of us to succeed, all of us to thrive, all of us to be in harmony um, all together. And I just love that imagery from the book of Isaiah that talks about the importance of harmony with our environment and harmony with the trees, the, the nature uh, that is surrounding us, and how relating uh, our sinful nature with a lack of harmony with uh, the environment uh, around us in uh, Adam, and Eve choosing the wrong tree uh, and choo uh, choosing the, the wrong tree as opposed to all the other trees. And as a result, 
being in a lack of harmony. But we're very grateful that Jesus has modeled to us incarnational living, and that Jesus has modeled to us an indigenous faith by not staying up in heaven where he could have easily stayed, but actually coming here down on earth so he can be present with us, so that he can suffer with us, so that he can be with us. And that is the model that we follow as an indigenous church here as well. And that's also the modeling that we remember as we um, take the sacrament of uh, communion. So if you have your communion uh, cups with you, please please pull that up and try your best to pull out the, the top film. Now this bread is made from many grains, from many fields, yet was formed into a single loaf. In the same way we are from many cultures and many places, but we are one body. The communion is a reminder that the body of Christ was broken so that we would be made one in him. The body of Christ broken for you. Let's respond. The body of Christ broken for me. Also, the juice of this cup contains many vines made by many hands, yet it pours freely. In the same way, let us pour ourselves freely, just as Christ modeled for us. May we be generous givers of our grace, mercy, and blessings to each other and to all. The cup of Christ poured out for you. Let's respond. The cup of Christ poured out for me. Let's respond all together with the following as we reflect on the elements. Though we partake now from a distance, we long for the day to partake together in person. And though we partake now with partial satisfaction, we long for the full feast at the eternal table in the presence of God. Uh, Let's pray together and uh, close our time together this morning. Uh, Father, thank you for what you have modeled thousands of years ago um, when you became incarnate here on earth to be present with us, to be familiar with uh, the elements, to be familiar with uh, the environment um, and all its harshness and cruelty here on earth. Thank you for being the the type of God that we can come uh, before with all of our messiness as well. For we can come to you with confidence, uh, knowing that you have been here just as we are, and we have a high priest that can sympathize with the struggles here on earth. So Lord, as we remember this day, would you give us courage, would you give us persistence to be present, to be stubbornly present to all that is going around us in our nation, all that is going around us in our communities and all that is going around us even in the lives before us and by so doing that we could reflect your values reflect your heart and be your hands and feet uh, in this world in jesus name i pray amen